Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 53, Torn Apart, The Loss of an Empire. This week, my favourite book recommendation is The Popes by John Julius Norwich. Norwich is one of my favourite historians, an absolutely beautiful writer and engaging historian. The Popes is of course not restricted to medieval history, but then nor are we. It's a fascinating viewpoint, and of course the influence of the papacy was never higher than in medieval times, when you could still talk about a united Christendom with one spiritual leader, or in some concept at least. Now, our sad task today is to show how John managed to lose his father's empire. But I thought I wouldn't start off there, actually, somewhere completely different. So last week I mentioned that our Hulebrun of Lusignan was surprised at Mirabeau still eating his pigeon pie at breakfast time. And that reminded me that we've never done the food and drink thing that I had on my list of social history. So let's do that first, and then we'll crack on with the sad story of John after that. One of the features of the Middle Ages is a sense that change happens slowly. Of course, in a relatively violent society, it doesn't take long to have a knife stuck into you or to suffer from some hideous and possibly terminal illness, and it has to be said that this would qualify as a reasonably dramatic change on a personal level. But as far as ways of life and attitudes are concerned, the Middle Ages are marked by stability. This same thing applies to what people ate. And just as medieval society was highly structured and hierarchical, this was also reflected in the differences between the diets of the common people and of the aristocracy. Cereals were of course the mainstay of the medieval diet. Rye, barley, oat and wheat in the main. Bread is a staple food, but not necessarily as we'd recognise it, so it would mainly be unleavened, and therefore served as flattish cakes. Unless you were in a noble household, you'd be likely to be eating a dark rye bread, 
rather than a wheat bread, although there's something of a regional divide, with wheat being more common in the south, because southerners are, by and large, softies. You'd also find a reasonable component of grit, given that the bread was stone ground, which has a significant impact on people's teeth. Life, of course, was closer to the edge in medieval times, and there were years of famine or extreme shortness. And in these years, flour might be made from ground peas, beans and bran to make something called horse bread. The name gives it away, I guess. It was normally destined for animals, but needs must when the devil dries. Like many other things in medieval life, the whole bread thing was communal in quite a few ways. Grinding the flour, for example, would be done at the local mill, where the miller would take a sixteenth or a twenty-fourth of the flour as his fee, and the lord would take a cut as well. The whole thing could be a good deal more communal than the church was comfortable with. There's the lovely story about the ladies of commercial and dubious moral values working the lines of men as they waited. Few peasant households would have their own bread oven either, so the bread cooking itself would also be a communal activity, and the resulting bread would be unleavened. And since everything was stone ground, it would contain a lot more than flour. The amount of grit that made its way into the flour had a clear impact on the medieval tooth. And even the eating would be communal. The normal plate was the trencher. This was a large, thick slice of stale bread with a hole scooped out in the middle, into which your food would be put. If you were eating in the hall of your lord, you'd very probably eat your meal in a group known as a mess. So you'd probably share your trencher with two or three other people, which meant a whole load of social rules about not grabbing too much, not sticking your elbows out, not blowing your nose over the food, that sort of thing. All the stuff your mother told you as well. For me personally, this communal eating would have been a big drawback to medieval life and could lead to eating becoming a competitive sport or maybe even a contact sport. By and large, fingers were the main eating tool, along with a knife, but no fork or spoon. The fork as an eating implement takes until the 17th century to reach northern Europe, and the first mention of spoons in England being used for normal meals dates from 1259. Like as not, the food that would be poured into your trencher would be a hideous-looking mess called a pottage. There are, I have no doubt, lots of people for whom pottage is an attractive food. Sadly, I'm not one of them. So basically, what we have here is a big pot or cauldron shoved full of everything edible that's lying around and then kept cooking over a fire for days. As time passed, the pottage would change with it and new ingredients became available. Even pottage would vary according to the class of the eater. As far as the peasantry was concerned, this is mainly a vegetarian dish. The nobility might expect to have some meat in the mix. Meat was of course a very valuable commodity, and if you were a peasant, would be in short supply. For starters, the church didn't allow you to eat meat every day. Wednesday, Friday and Saturday were supposed to be fast days, no meat or eggs allowed, though you could have fish. The same applied to Advent and Lent, which meant that together over half the year was off limits for meat. But of course for your peasant, there were many other reasons why eating meat wasn't a good idea, which is basically that animals were far too useful to be eaten. So you wouldn't be having lamb, though from time to time you just might have mutton. So you might think that fish would be a viable alternative, or maybe just nipping off into the woods and taking yourself a bit of game. The trouble with fish was partly that transportation was difficult if you lived in land, as I'm sure you know, methods of preserving food were a bit dicey, and no smeg freezers were available. So people did their best with pickling and drying and salting, 
but just to add to the problem was the fact that transportation was slow and expensive. And meanwhile, the rules on not eating meat meant that nobles and religious types all went for fish, and this put the price up, so only the better-off peasants could afford fish as well. And as for game, well, that was very much off-limits. Game belonged to the lord. If you were a peasant, you might just be able to catch a few conies on the common land. Conies, as rabbits were known, had been brought to England in the 12th century and were becoming common around now. The peasant diet would have been supplemented by vegetables from the kitchen garden, all overcooked, which is apparently a bad thing, though in my case would get the seal of approval, since the less like a vegetable it looks, the better it is. Aristocrats would treat most vegetables with complete contempt. Why would you eat something that's just been pulled out of the ground? Which is an excellent question, as yet not answered to my satisfaction. If you did eat vegetables, you'd recognise most of them, but would notice some absences. Carrots, for example, looked purple or yellow until the orange variety arrived in the 17th century. Beans would have been the fava bean type, like broad beans, not things like runner beans, which arrived much later from South America. Interestingly, Hugh de Lusignan and his breakfast pigeon doesn't seem to have been the normal setup. I have to say that I've read almost every possible variation of when the 12th century mealtimes fell, but there does seem to be pretty general agreement that you'd normally only expect two mealtimes, and breakfast wasn't one of them. Some think the first meal would be mid-morning, say 10 to 11 o'clock, and this was the big one, to be followed by supper, a much smaller meal, in the late afternoon, say 4 to 5 o'clock. But there are other views, giving two meal times much closer to what we'd expect today, so midday and the evening. Whenever you ate your meal, you would have a lot more choice in the towns and in the Lord's Hall than in the peasant's house. In the town, the existence of the markets, of course, gave more choice, with a much wider choice of vegetables, fruit and spices. Many houses and towns also had rather feeble cooking spaces, so we get the invention of the takeaway, as a big concentration of cook shops along the banks of the Thames at this time, for example. But if you got the chance to choose, you'd take lunch in the aristocratic household. These were formal occasions, whether you were at a feast or at a normal meal. A pitcher of water would be brought round and everyone expected to wash their hands. The lord would sit at a high table at the end of the hall with the table covered by a cloth and then with tables along down the side of the hall. Salt cellars, knives and bread would be laid out. Thomas Beckett, for example, was noted for the grandness of his table. As a chronicler observed, his table was resplendent with gold and silver plate and abounded in dainty dishes and expensive wines. Though it's worth noting that for most households, tableware was generally wood, earthenware or pewter. Servants would be well-dressed and would carry around the water for washing and serve the food and so on. In the largest households, lunch might take two sittings, which would guarantee you a fat lord, since the tradition was that he sat down at table first and he rose last. There would usually be four courses, two main and two light. This would be considerably more at big occasions, which could be hideously extravagant with pork, mutton, venison, wild duck, capons, wild boar, cranes, geese, swans and peppered peacocks, the last of which makes a great alliteration, but I am prepared to bet a rotten dish. When lunch was over, you were expected to wash your hands, then any remaining food was distributed to the poor, and then the whole event was over. So there you go. Now obviously a pretty brief survey of the wonders of medieval cookery. We'll come back to it in a century or so when we've got a bit more information about the details and as habits begin to change. 
So, let's get back to the politics. We left John last week in January 1203, when he'd managed to throw away most of the benefits of his excellent victory at Mirabeau. Things were now starting to look bad. Brittany was in revolt. In the south, Maine, Anjou and Touraine were close to becoming no-go areas, with the defection of William des Roches and Emery de Thouar. Further south in Poitou, Hugh de Lusignan arrived home, kissed the wife, kicked the cat, thought hard for two minutes about the nature of sacred oaths, the value of a man's word and the quality of loyalty. Revoked his promises to John and prepared to kick him instead. In Normandy, Ralph de Lusignan returned to his lands in the north of Normandy around Ur, which you may remember Richard had given to him, and followed the example of Brother Hugh. And in the east of Normandy, Philip was battering away at the border castles. It was bad, even very bad, but it wasn't yet a complete dead loss. Aquitaine was basically behind him still. He had the traditional and impressive royal castles like Le Mans, Chinon and Loche as centres of power in Menonjou and Touraine. And he had a competent mercenary army and captains at his command. He also had a plan. He'd rely on the screen of castles in the east of Normandy and Vexin to hold back the French king, as had happened so often in the past. And he'd start off by putting the south to rights. So, he set himself up in Argentin in the south of Normandy and gathered his forces. Meanwhile, his possibly unacceptably young wife Isabel was at Chinon, and news reached John that the castle was under siege and hard-pressed. So, he planned a repeat of Mirabeau. He set out with a detachment of mercenaries to rescue her. And this is where John falls apart, and loses the military nous and daring he'd shown that he might just have and spends the rest of his time rushing around like a blue-bottom fly in search of a bacon sandwich. Because as he marched south, he heard that the Count of Alençon in the extreme south of Normandy had defected to Philip as well. This was alarming, since John had had supper with him just the other day, and he'd seemed fine then. John panicked, and his nerve went. He cowered in Le Mans and sent one of his captains to rescue Isabel. When they returned with his queen, John returned to the relative safety of Rouen. From that point on, it's not that John didn't do anything. On the contrary, he rushed around to and from Rouen in desperation, with no strategy or purpose. If it's true to say that a man shows his true character when he's in trouble, then the verdict on John's character isn't great. Now, one of John's closest baronial supporters was a man called William de Briouze. The Briouze family had come over with William at the conquest and had originally acquired an honour centred on the rape of Bamba in Sussex. The family had steadily grown in power and influence, becoming a powerful part of the Welsh marcher lords, with holdings in Radnor and Brecon. He had been with Richard at Chalou and was a constant companion of John in Normandy. He was the man who had been given the job of looking after Arthur and so was very well placed to know what went on. Briouze was the patron of a Cistercian Abbey in Glamorgan, and the only hint of what happened next comes from a series of annals written at that abbey. Here's what they say. After King John had captured Arthur and kept him alive in prison for some time, at length in the castle of Rouen, after dinner on the Thursday before Easter, which is incidentally the 3rd of April, when he was drunk and possessed by the devil, he slew him with his own hand and tying a heavy stone to the body, cast it into the Seine. It was discovered by a fisherman in his net and being dragged to the bank and recognised was taken for secret burial in the fear of the tyrant 
to the Priory of Beck. You can picture it, can't you? John's situation was increasingly desperate. He was in a miasma of fear and desperation. Nothing seemed to be working. His men were deserting him. It just wasn't fair. So he struck out at Arthur, the only guy he could get his hands on. The story is given credence by the fate of William de Briuse. John's first approach was to bribe the man to keep his silence by granting him three castles in Wales. Skenfrith, Gromor and the White Castle. If you're ever in the area, by the way, I can heartily recommend it as great walking country. And one of the castles is on the Offa's Dyke path, so plenty of history. But then, sometime after 1207, John, in one of those typical examples of his unpredictability and capriciousness, began to fear that the Briuse family was too powerful. So he did something that he often did. He demanded hostages from William. This practice is just one of the examples of John's complete inability to trust his barons. It's not that it never happened before, but John does it far more. And previously, it was the sort of thing a king did to a baron just after he'd revolted. And it does seem a rather remarkable basis for a relationship. Yes, of course I trust you. But would you mind handing over your son, you know, just in case? Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. William's wife was one Matilda, a strong-minded person described as wise, doughty, vigorous and beautiful by the chroniclers and famous in her own right for the defence of Paincastle against the Welsh. So she refused to hand over any of her children with the fateful words, I will not deliver my children to a king who had murdered his own nephew. OK, so possibly true, but the truth can hurt and on this occasion it could be said that it might just possibly perhaps not have been the best and most politic answer. Matilda seems to have realised that maybe she had not selected the best reason and sent Queen Isabel a herd of 400 cattle. Nice try, Matilda, and innovative too, so much better than a gold bracelet or the like, but in this case, unfortunately, no cigar. The price of Matilda's gaffe was to be her life. John sent an army into Wales to take William's lands and took his lands in Sussex and Devon. Matilda and her sons fled to Ireland, but John sent an army to pursue them. And finally, as they were trying to take a ship to Scotland, they were caught. She was taken to Windsor Castle, then to Corfe Castle in Dorset, and in 1216, she and her son William were starved to death. Her husband William, meanwhile, had fled to Ireland and then Wales, where he'd joined the Welsh and been declared an outlaw. Finally, he fled to France, where he died in Paris in 1217. It's quite a story. It's the kind of behaviour that landed John in a civil war, that led to the Magna Carta and the famous Clause 39. No man shall be imprisoned, outlawed or banished, or in any way destroyed, nor shall we proceed against or prosecute him except by the lawful judgment of his peers. But Magna Carta is for a future episode. For the moment, it was the death of Arthur that caused the brown stuff to make contact with the air conditioning equipment. There are broadly three parts to this. 
One was that this was the final nail in the coffin of John's personal credibility for his French barons. They'd hoped that he'd put the reputation of his youth behind him, but this seemed to prove that he was terminally untrustworthy and unreliable. Second was the impact in Brittany. Arthur had not only been their rightful lord, he'd also been named after the legend of Arthur. He was supposed to be the new coming of a great national hero and saviour, so they were understandably upset. And thirdly, it gave Philip a superb stick with which to beat John about the head. When John tried to make peace or declare a truce, Philip said, OK, just as soon as you produce Arthur, which of course he couldn't. In the words of William the Marshal's biographer, treachery now ran through Normandy like an epidemic. The rest of the defence of Normandy wasn't carried out by its natural defenders, its barons. It was entirely carried out by the king, his mercenaries and English castellans that he put in charge of the royal castles. John was now effectively a stranger in what had been the heartland of the Norman and Angevin kings. The Norman barons not only didn't trust John, they also had much less to lose than in previous times by having a split between the overlord of England and the overlord of Normandy. It had previously been the case that the barons owned land in both England and Normandy, so if Normandy went to someone other than the King of England, they would potentially lose half their lands. But by John's reign, this had mainly changed, because most families had already been forced to take action by the split between Robert Curto's and Henry I, and during the anarchy of Stephen's reign, when Normandy had been lost to Geoffrey of Anjou. Funnily enough, one of the major exceptions to this was William the Marshal. Our friend William was at John's side throughout and was the leader of the English resistance after John fled from Normandy and you've got to say that it doesn't do his military reputation any good at all. So now, rather than John launching his offensive into Maine and Anjou from Argentin, it was Philip who was able to sail up the Loire and right into the Angevin heartlands. The Angevin Empire had been cut in half and communication between Normandy and the south cut. Meanwhile, the defences in Normandy began to crack too. The castle of Conche was taken. The vital castle of Vaudreuil suddenly surrendered, even though it had recently been resupplied and was bristling with arms and men. John issued a proclamation to say that he'd ordered them to surrender, but it's unlikely that the Normans would have believed this and nodded their heads in agreement that this would indeed have been a wise, brave and imaginative strategy. By the way, everyone, you'll not be surprised to learn that there are maps available on the website, thehistoryofengland.com. Thanks, Chris. And so, in August 1203, Philip came to the walls of Chateau Gaillard, Richard's beautiful castle, impregnable. This was the big one, and it was captained by a loyal Englishman, Roger de Lacy, who had no stake in Normandy and nothing to lose. John did try to make sure Gaillard's position was as strong as possible. He organised a nighttime resupply expedition. A force of 70 boats was to take provisions up the river. At the same time, William the Marshal was to lead an army up the left bank of the Seine, destroy the French encampment while the naval force smashed their way into the castle. The operation was a complete mess. The boats fell behind schedule because of the strength of the current. The land army was routed because they had to hang around waiting. And when the naval force did arrive, it was beaten off with heavy losses. The historian Warren tries to represent this as the failure of John's men to carry out an imaginative military strategy. Now I'm no military man, but to me the whole scheme sounds poorly planned, such as knowing how long the boats would really take, 
and far too complicated for a nighttime operation, but you can choose your own view. Sir John now did the military equivalent of murdering Arthur, he turned his back on Gaillard and launched an attack on the strategically insignificant Brittany. He did a bit of plundering in the town of Dole, and that was that. It was an irrelevant campaign, and it was also the last that John mounted from northern soil. As the military situation got worse and worse, John's panic levels rose, and the quality of his decisions got even worse. Worried sick by the possibility of treachery from his barons, he did everything possible to increase the probability of treachery. He showed his lack of distrust. So, for example, when he'd taken the homage of Uel of Mayenne, he made Uel's knights and townsmen give him charters that if Uel proved disloyal, they would fight for John against him. By contrast, he put more and more trust in mercenary captains. They not only led his armies, he also put them in positions of administrative authority, such as the Seneschal of Turenne and the Seneschal of La Marche. He put a mercenary captain called Lupscar in Falaise, and given that Lupscar means the wolf, the good burghers of Falaise can hardly have heard that news with happy smiles. These men were rapacious robbers who stripped away any pretense that the Angevin reign now stood for fairness, prosperity and stability. The quote from William the Marshal's chronicler of the time illustrates the point perfectly. Do you know why King John was unable to keep the love of his people? It was because Lupuscar maltreated them and pillaged them as though he were in enemy territory. Sir John became more and more distant from his barons, the men who could have really made a difference. He surrounded himself with mercenaries and bachelors, i.e. unknighted household warriors, bound to him by personal service that he felt he could trust. As his panic and fear grew, in December 1203, the inevitable happened and he ran. The following passage, again from William the Marshal's biography, gives a good impression of the fear and mistrust that surrounded John by this time. The king stayed but a short time in Rouen, and gave out that he intended to go to England to take counsel and help from his barons, saying that he would return immediately. But since he took the Queen with him, many feared that he would stay in England until too late. Preparations were quickly made for the King, had already sent on his baggage privately. On the first night he slept at Bonville, not in the town, but in the castle, because he feared treason. Indeed, he had been warned that most of his barons had sworn to hand him over to the French King and although he pretended to be unaware of their intention, he kept well away from them. He told Marshall and those in whom he trusted to be ready before daybreak, and so he slipped away, without taking leave while he was supposed to be asleep. And by the time his departure was discovered, he was seven leagues on. He went towards Barfleur, where many of his followers bade him farewell. It was perfectly clear they could not expect him back soon. To do him justice, John probably was planning to come back. He reckoned that if he could raise enough money and a big enough force, he should have enough time. Gaillard should be able to hold out for many more months, and even if that did fall, Rouen had in the past proved a tough nut to crack. In January, he called his English barons together, and they agreed a scootage tax to pay for the war. By March, his preparations looked complete, and he was ready to go. And then disaster struck. Chateau Gaillard, supposedly impregnable, fell to Philip. It didn't fall to treachery, it fell to storm. 
Phillips miners had used a tongue of rock that really should have been removed by Richard's engineers to hide their operations. And although the miners were discovered, they'd managed to weaken the wall enough to be brought down by Phillips siege engines. The defenders fought on, but were eventually overwhelmed. They can hardly be blamed. It had taken six months to break through. In April, John suffered another blow when news reached him that his mother Eleanor had finally died. Shortly after hearing the news about the fall of Gaillard and the probable end of the empire she'd been such a central part of. She was taken to Fontevraud and buried next to her husband. Rouen was now open to Philip, but he resisted the temptation to wash up against the walls that had defeated him in the past. Instead, he swept through the rest of Normandy. Loupscar took one week in Falaise to see what side his trench was butted on and took up service with the King of France. Caen, William the Conqueror's ancient capital, surrendered in May without a fight. The Bretons attacked through the west of Normandy and joined Philip at Caen, while Philip sent detachments to take the surrender of the Cherbourg Peninsula. And only then did Philip turn towards Rouen. And there sat Peter de Preyer, a mercenary captain. So, what exactly am I defending now, he might well have asked himself. In the words of Steve Harley, there's nothing left. He went through the form. He asked Philip for a truce and agreed in traditional format that if John didn't send help within 30 days, he'd surrender. John did no such thing. And so on the 24th of June, 1204, the King of France entered Rouen and Normandy was lost. So, what's the summary then? Why were Normandy, Anjou, Maine and Touraine and Brittany lost? It would be easy to blame John. It would be easy because it was largely his fault. So there we are. Despite one flash of military competence, John had proved a rotten military commander. The chroniclers sought to explain John's apparent helplessness by painting a picture of a man who couldn't be bothered, that he lay in bed all day with his bewitching wife. But that's not what the record shows. In fact, he thrashed around like a ferret in a sack. But he had no coherent plan. Plus, his behaviour in 1203-4 showed him as both a coward and a panicker. You simply can't imagine Richard running for home like that. He'd have been in the thick of the action. Many castles in the south were simply handed over to Philip, not because of mistrust, but because the garrisons knew full well they'd get no help from John, so why fight on? Normandy was lost so quickly and so easily because it fell from within as much as from external attack. John had destroyed any loyalty the barons had felt, destroyed their desire to resist. And at the same time, John's terror of treachery paralysed him and prevented him from mounting any proper response. It all sort of reminds me of Ethelred, the helpless clawing around internally at each other while the monster chewed the door down unopposed. In this atmosphere, the French monarchy looked increasingly attractive, not just as a trustworthy safe haven, but because culturally Paris was a far more glittering and attractive prospect. The French court had somehow acquired a sense of leadership that John was completely unable to project. But let's try and throw a few lifelines to John. First off, the allies that Richard had been able to win back from Philip had all disappeared on crusade. It meant that Philip could concentrate on the Angevins in a way that he hadn't been able to in the earlier campaign against Richard. Having said that, it's entirely possible that the Counts of Boulogne and Flanders went on campaign partly because they mistrusted John, and having already rejected Philip, wanted to avoid getting involved in this dispute, 
and going on crusade protected their lands against attack from either party. Then again, let's give some credit to Philip Augustus. Philip was no military genius, but he was dogged, and he was a superb player of the diplomatic game. Richard had outplayed him, but John could not. Philip had the legal right of the overlord on his side, and he used that with great skill. Finally, while I can't see the argument that the Angevin Empire had been squeezed dry of money, I can see the point that there is something of a long-term reaction against the Angevins. Henry had been a hard ruler, much disliked in his day, though later much revered. Richard also rode his kingdom hard, but had been a hero of chivalry and success, so the people were prepared to pay his price. But John had no such charisma. So, whilst the distracting dazzle of Henry and Richard was gone, John found a fund of built-up resentment that he couldn't deal with. And he's going to find exactly the same problem in England. And he's going to find exactly the same problem in England pretty soon as well. So, that's it folks. I don't think I'll have to mention the Vexat ever again on this podcast. I will miss it, really. We're not entirely done with Normandy, but there is the feel of an end of an era, isn't there? There's still quite a bit left in France to the English crown in Aquitaine, but that's soon going to be a bit of a struggle to hold on to as well. So, thanks very much for listening, everyone. Did I mention my joy at going over 50 comments on both US and UK iTunes? Anyway, keep them coming. Good luck and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.